At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books and Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her phenomenal new book, God's Property, Islam, Charity and the Modern State, Nada Mumtaz charts the historical continuities and disjunctures, as well as contemporary paradoxes shadowing the intellectual and sociological career of waqf or Islamic charity or endowment in modern Lebanon. Nimbly moving between layered textual analysis, riveting ethnography and formidable historical inquiry, Mumtaz demonstrates the secularization and sectarianization of waqf in Lebanon, premised on the attempted state separation between the spheres of the public and the private and religion and economy. While exploring the workings of Waqf historically, intellectually, and as part of everyday life with meticulous detail, Mumtaz constantly connects the details of her study to its broader argument, centered on critiquing the secular promise of separating religion and economy as distinct domains of life. This beautifully written book will be widely read and taught in multiple disciplines, including anthropology, religion, Islamic studies, and history. Here now is my conversation with Professor Nada Mumtaz. Hello, Nada. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for your time and for writing this really incredible uh, book that, as I was saying before I pressed record here, uh, really I think will spark some great conversations and really is an incredible book because it uh, very successfully is situated at the intersection of so many different fields, including anthropology, theories and methods in anthro and religion, Islamic studies, sort of more classical Islamic studies, history, uh, and so on. So uh, it really is quite an achievement. I want to congratulate you for it. And uh, as a way to begin our conversation, uh, Nada, as uh, you will know that on the New Books Network, uh, we begin by asking our authors about their intellectual journeys. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit about how you became a scholar of anthropology, Islam, uh, and so on and so forth. How did you become a scholar first? Thank you so much, Sher Ali, for having me and for reading and engaging. Well, I will first say that I never really intended to become a scholar or an anthropologist. Um, before applying to graduate school, I was working as an architect and was a bit perhaps disappointed in the practice uh, because I had so much hope uh, through my training because when I was an architecture student at the American University of Beirut, 
um, my social horizons were blessed, and I was like, we had read people like Lefebvre and Foucault and Bourdieu, and I was particularly drawn into, you know, these questions about how space shapes people and people shape space, and and that was what we engaged with mostly during design and the design studios that we took. And then here I was working as an architect, and you realize that the design process where you're thinking about these questions is basically a couple of months, and then you move on to construction documents and, you know, development of the design development and and these phases that take up years. (laughs) And so at the time I thought, okay, well, maybe that's a good time for me to do a PhD to continue thinking about these questions. So it was supposed to be an interlude and basically before going back to Lebanon and doing work around urban interventions and urban research and policy. And it was really uh, friends and mentors who suggested anthropology. I, I had thought perhaps I'll do urban planning, but then they were joked and said, well, you know, you uh, are interested in the social because they used to nickname me Neta Social. So that was kind of the context of uh, where I was uh, coming from. And I was also interested uh, by also things happening in the city at the time around me, which was particularly the Islamic revival. And uh, just to kind of say that also, uh, I want to pause perhaps for a second and say that it's, it's, it's really hard and sad and you know, it, it creates a lot of difficult feelings for me uh, for the book to come out in the midst of the worst crisis in Lebanese history. And it just is nonsensical <laughs> to be talking about walks when people don't have uh, electricity or fuel or food or medication and their salaries have lost 90% of their value and um, their savings have disappeared and banks who are not giving it to them and, you know, all of that. So it just feels awkward to be happy. It just I'm trying to compartmentalize, but it, it's still difficult. I try to say, well, hopefully there will be some time uh, and space to think. Uh, and uh, things hopefully will eventually get better. <laughs> and maybe then that work will be useful. Uh, but it's hard to cling on to any hope um, these days. Um, yeah, uh, so just, uh, uh, something just to kind of say that this is part of what is happening. <laughs> um, and, and to come back to your question about how I became a scholar, and when I started the PhD, I was, uh, interested in that revival and the forms Islam were taking at the time, which were different from the ones they took when I was growing up. There's all of these study circles, people started to go to, like, the mosque to pray tarawih prayers in Ramadan. Uh, so I was interested in, uh, you know, what drew people to that revival? What was it about its appeal um, and its forms? And, and so at the time also, uh, as I said, anthro, I thought, was uh, would be helpful um, because of the big theoretical kind of foundation that it would give me because I was also slightly disappointed in the way anthro, uh, architects use theory because they were mostly picking and choosing which I feel like yes it's a good way to activate theory but if I'm trying to do some like you know uh, research I don't want to use contradictory frameworks etc so anyways all of this to say is that um, 
I basically ended up applying <laughs> to anthropology, and I because I was interested in the revival, um, I came eventually to use and read quite widely Islamic studies, Islamic legal studies, anthro history, political theory, whatever would help me really understand uh, these questions I was interested in. And so I think that also uh, reflects uh, what you talked about at the beginning of the episode, which is the fact that my work is really truly interdisciplinary. And uh, yeah, so my my focus on these Islamic endowments, uh, which you know, they are both an act of charity and a form of property, came uh, during my PhD. And uh, and I they brought together, were, they were a good site for me because they brought together my interest in the urban with the Islamic revival. And, uh, and I, in thinking about it, you know, it's also an interesting uh, aspect of the revival to study because it's also less dictated or like, yeah, dictated by the Western gaze, I would say. So I wanted to begin by sort of talking about the larger sort of uh, conceptual architecture uh, of the book and the key theme. And one of the things that your book really shows is that this category of waqf that you might sort of, one, one might, you know, loosely translate as Islamic endowment, etc. is such an extremely complicated category with many different shades, etc. Uh, you've already begun to talk about this, but maybe, you know, for listeners who may not be familiar, uh, maybe you could uh, talk a bit about this category of uh, and what makes it so complicated as a category, the different sort of uh, modalities it can take. But then I also wanted to uh, more substantively have you talk a bit about the theoretical um, sort of structure or uh, architecture of the book, which you really very beautifully lay out in your introduction in talking about a grammatical analysis of waqf and what that means for you. So I was wondering if you could also uh, briefly describe for our listeners what does a grammatical analysis of waqf, waqf uh, mean and entail? <clears throat> um, it is true that the impetus for a lot of the book comes from a question that arose partly during my ethnographic research, which is, what is this waqf thing? <laughs> I assumed I knew what waqf was because I had read a lot of Islamic legal studies and histories of waqf. And so I assumed I knew what, what it meant. And it was only when I encountered people uh, in the quote-unquote field that I started to better understand that what I thought was waqf was different from what I my interlocutors thought was waqf. So, um, so this made me experience something that I was also familiar with theoretically, but now I was experiencing kind of, you know, uh, in my body. And that's the fact that meaning varies according to context, which is an insight I take from Assad, who takes it from Wittgenstein. So to answer your question, a grammatical analysis is one that looks uh, at meanings in context, or as Wittgenstein puts it, it's the rules for the use of a word. And so he uses grammar, Wittgenstein does, uh, in a way that's different, say, from a linguist uh, who talks about grammar, which is more familiar to us through rules like, you know, the orders of declarative sentences, subject, object, verb, or in French, things like all nouns that end in OU have plurals that end with S, or, you know, uh, yeah, with X, except some that end with S, um, or for Arabic speakers, uh, you know, things like that. <laughs> so, but for Wittgenstein, uh, that is not his interest. He's interested in uh, the meaning of words in context and 
the kind of uh, what he calls basically these contexts, he calls them language games. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of what my French teacher used to tell us, that we should not look up words in the dictionary while reading novels, unless it was really essential, and that eventually by reading a lot, watching TV, etc., we would get a much more nuanced understanding of the word and the senses in which it's used by seeing it used in context. So I think that's kind of what I was trying to do and seeing how people use that word and what it really means. Um, so when I was trying to understand these different meanings as an anthropologist, there were different sorts of contexts. You know, there was the everyday uses and there was legal uses uh, in the contemporary Lebanese context. But there was also something else, which is these different historical contexts. So in my case, the language game, uh, if you will, the context was, was not stable. So to talk about these different contexts, I kind of use the word architecture, which is, uh, you know, the, the language game when I'm talking about a form of life. So that's why when I read about Waqfs and historical studies, um, I thought it was a different thing than what my interlocutors in Beirut thought it was today. Um, and, and so to answer the question about what Waqf is, um, I would have to say it depends on context. <laughs> and even though, of course, because it's anchored in the Islamic tradition, it does have some continuities. So Waqf is um, first and foremost an act of charity. But what does that charity look like? And that is partly what has changed. Part of what I do is trains, trace that, uh, the forms that this charity took. So in 19th century Beirut, based on the Sharia records I examined and Ottoman you know, legal literature, waqf involves usually an immovable that has a benefit that is dedicated in perpetuity to charity. So there's also some you know, exceptions uh, about movables and there's about cash, but we don't need to get into he these here. But so in some sense, um, there's two main kinds of walks. One is the things that are in, a, them, in and of themselves uh, providing for charitable purposes like a mosque or a school or a water fountain or a soup kitchen. All of these uh, institutions that provide purposes, uh, you know, that pr whose purposes are charitable. And if one does that, to help people, you know, learn about uh, and pray and etc. This is considered charity. Uh, and then there's also another enormous part of uh, the, the other forms of walks that I've seen, which are attached to these institutions and financing them. So the shops and the lands and buildings and, you know, rooms even, whose revenues support these institutions as well as the poor. Uh, so through distribution of uh, revenues, bread, and even sometimes, you know, uh, another beneficiary for these lands and shops as well are the families of founders. And uh, I will get into that uh, perhaps later in another question when we talk about the family as, as a, a legitimate kind of uh, a recipient of charity. So that's 19th century Beirut. Now, fast forward, you know, to when I'm doing research uh, in the late uh, 2000s and with the uh, uh, Waqf founders, the first thing I noticed was that the Waqf of shops or land was not common anymore. And it was mostly Islamic centers and mosques. 
but I also was surprised to see walks that did not really uh, involve any immovable. You know, they were mostly looking like NGOs or nonprofits, as uh, you call them in the states. Uh, so NGOs being non-governmental organizations. So uh, some people uh, dedicated very little money, $100 or $200, to create an association for the defense of human rights or to create an association for the defense against Western imperialism. And though in these, the walk stopped being an immovable whose revenues support um, a charitable purpose and becomes more importantly a kind of a shell for a moral person that can then own property and can do fundraisers and have a bank account, etc., so um, I was partly interested in understanding what were the conditions that opened the space for Wolf to become this person, this moral person. Um, what are the possibilities that this new form of what are the possibilities that this new form of Wolf opens for Muslims operating in Beirut under the Lebanese state rather than say under an Ottoman Empire? No, it's com- no, it's completely fine. It's just don't uh, think too much about that. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Um, okay, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the great things about every chapter in this book is the you know the way you um, look at a particular conceptual problem and then you historically chart it from you know the you know talking about it in the classical sort of Islamic thought and the Ottoman period and then more uh, sort of contemporary and modern transformations. Uh, and that is especially true for your first chapter in which you talk about ways in which, uh, you know, the what one might call the sociological or epistemic position of Waqf in the late Ottoman Empire sort of straddled uh, between the temporal worldly realm, but also the hereafter in terms of the, 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 the rewards for something like uh, uh, any, uh, you know, uh, articulation of Waqf was reserved for the hereafter. And it was not re- reducible to the status of a moral person, uh, that sort of more dominant um, sort of positionality that it took later. So could you talk a bit about this transformation or this this argument, uh, especially in terms of the position of Waqf in the late Ottoman Empire, and how did it straddle these two sort of realms of the worldly and the, and the hereafter? And how was it not reducible to this idea of a moral, quote-unquote, moral? Um, Thank you for this question. You just made me realize one thing I would like to highlight, um, that this kind of broader transformation that I chart is also not linear. So partly what I'm interested in is the way these older conceptions continue to exist today, Uh, that the kind of modern conception could have existed in the tradition, but as minor traditions. So I feel like partly what I'm trying to to do is to think about how these different conceptions can coexist within a tradition while some being more dominant than others and what are the historical, uh, political, social, economic contexts that make one tradition become more dominant. So for example, the question of Wolf as a moral person existed in the 19th century. Uh, if you read some uh, of the more polemical books or articles, you know, scholarly literature today about Wolf, some would claim that Wolf was not a moral person. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, it didn't develop to become the shell for like a model for a cor- corporation that could have helped with capital accumulation uh, and helped develop the Muslim world. So that, you know, <laughs> that becomes uh, one way why uh the Muslim world, quote-unquote, didn't uh, develop its own kind of uh, forms of capitalism. 
Uh, but in fact, when you examine what's in archival documents, these mostly accounting documents and lawsuits, and uh, not just the legal texts, uh, which always state uh, the waqf has no dhimma, or legal personality, you realize that in fact, um, in the practice, in these court documents, in these archival documents, the administrators and judges act as if the waqf has a dhimma. And that is something that has been noted by uh, a few uh, scholars who work on waqf. Uh, so, for example, the waqf lent money to another waqf, or the administrator has limited liability that make it make it so that the waqf is almost itself like liable. Um, but even though it almost uh, acted like a moral person it was not to say the dominant way that waqf was approached, that we think about it as this, you know, corporation or uh, non-profit organization or an association uh, that has a life of its own. So anyways, just to come back to the substance of the question about waqf as it straddles the here and now and the hereafter, I would say that one important aspect of waqf is that it is both about making profit and putting this profit towards charity, doing good and getting close to God in the hereafter. So it's one of uh, one way through which economic activity, when done with the right intent, can bring rewards in the hereafter. So that's kind of one of these ways that, you know, the waqf straddles, you know, these two realms. Uh, in, in the Hanafi tradition, in uh, the, the dominant one that is most commonly used in the Ottoman Empire, the founder surrenders the ownership of the waqf to God. So God becomes the owner of the waqf. So as you can see, that's kind of uh, where the title of the book comes from. So in some ways, that makes it so that there are many of many characters uh, in the property relations that the waqf creates. There's the founder, who sees it to be the owner. There's the beneficiaries. Uh, and then there's the administrator. But then there's God, who is now the owner. <laughs> so with, uh, with a, a property uh, uh, regime that uh, is instituted by the French in uh, Lebanon starting in the 1920s, uh, there's no space for God as an owner uh, whose agent, you know, the administrators will take care uh, and rent the wealth and distribute its revenues. So in, in uh, the French property registry deeds, there was one space for the owner. And you can imagine, you know, there's uh, not, uh, God is not really, you know, going to be put there as the owner. So the surveyors usually put, you know, beneficiaries uh, or they can put the original founder or they can put the administrator or they can actually put the waqf. And that's exactly what happens is that, you know, the the surveyors put in the waqf as the owner. And it's in this very inconspicuous moment that you start seeing how the waqf itself becomes an owner and a moral person who owns property. It's, you know, it's at a... It's a shift uh, that happens part through some practices. And, uh, you know, that's one way, uh, that's kind of one of the ways that help move the waqf to, uh, to become a moral person. But of course, there's also the creation of the laws of corporation. Um, 
that also allows uh, that new form uh, of, of waqf to become legible legally. And But the gist of it is that, you know, the absence of God from the cast of characters uh, in property relations, they help solidify that minor tradition that had existed before of making waqf into a moral person. And so really partly also one of the effects of that is that the waqf ceases to be thought of a very, you know, thought of as a very worldly financing structure um, that as long uh, that it brings revenues, it brings rewards to their founders in the hereafter. So it kind of has these both realms together and rather becomes this association that is kind of in and of itself, uh, um, you know, either doing good or um, itself just, uh, yeah, it, it's itself doing good. Now, another great virtue of this book is that it um, always connects these um, sort of um, um, very detailed readings that you're doing of texts and, you know, sort of the ethnographic uh, site, uh, but then you always constantly connect it to the larger theme of the book as I read it, which is, to really highlight some of the paradoxes and some of the irresolvable contradictions of modern state sovereignty, uh, you know, a modern state power uh, and secular power, more broadly speaking. And I think uh, perhaps in no other chapter does that come through uh, in more striking ways than, than the next one in which you talk about the DGIW that I will have you describe. Uh, so, yeah, my main question is what is the DGIW and how do some of the paradoxes that shadow its role as a supposed controller of waqf highlights some of the larger paradoxes of secular power and modern state power. Well, thank you so much for this great compliment. Um, for me, the hardest part of the project is how not to get buried in the weeds and to move between detail and theory and connect the detail to the bigger conceptual questions I'm interested in. Um, but I will also say that Part of me is also very interested in the weeds. You know, I'm I'm interested in understanding how things are exactly working and why, but I'm also interested in the practicalities of how we can operate and opera, operationalize Waqf in Lebanon in a more radical way. So partly the weeds matter for an, audio, an audience that will read the book, which are the people who might be reading the book, not just for its theoretical interventions, but in Lebanon, who are looking at these legal details and historical precedents that can animate walks today differently and towards different projects than the ones that exist in the current configuration uh, of the state today and the way uh, they hook walks into that system. So... Um, so in some ways, these tensions between the kind of super detail and the more theoretical is partly also, I'd say, the way my book tries to talk to these different audiences. Um, and, and one of these audiences, as you mentioned, is, you know, those interested in, in thinking about secularism and modern state power and their paradoxes. Um, you know, um, I... I, I I will note that one of the paradoxes I encountered was regarding what you might call as a shorthand, quote-unquote, straight con state control of walks. Um, uh, I, I would I say, quote-unquote, state control uh, because um, it 
I don't want to say like, you know, with a modern state, now they're state controlled before there was no state control. Of course, before the 19th century, most wakfs were administered royally, that's right. But the judges supervised the, the administrators. And even though there was no procedure for supervision, it's not that the supervi- like the administrators submitted a yearly accounting to the judge or anything of that sort. But if any problem arose, um, beneficiaries or administrators took it to the judge. So the state was kind of, you know, is there through the judges that it appoints. Um, but it was the state was not involved in the administration of wealth, uh, even if it was ad- involved in supervision. Um, and today there is uh, a different structure that is much more involved with both supervision and administration, and that's the Director General of Islamic Waqfs, the DGIW, uh, which administers a lot, but not actually all waqfs. That's also something uh, I, I won't get into here. So, so the DGIW, um, you know, is uh, is the heir of the Ottoman Waqf Ministry that was founded in 1826. And so when I started doing my research, I noticed that the Waqf, uh, the direct DGIW, was trying to control, quote-unquote, Waqf foundations. So, for example, they'd issue these uh, decrees saying, you know, uh, Waqf founders should get a permission from the DGIW if they're going to do a Waqf. So I found that surprising since I was like, well, the DJIW as the heir of the Ottoman Waqf Ministry, I mean, they've been trying, they've, they've done that before, I thought. And after 200 years, why are they still trying to do that? And I and I think that one of that is, uh, one of the reasons behind that is, as you mentioned, these paradoxes of the modern state and law. And so one of these paradoxes is the attempt to fit into these legal categories, complex phenomena like Waqf that don't work according to the categories of civil law that was imported by the French. So the question becomes like, is wealth subject to property law or personal law? Is it economy that will be regulated by uh, real estate property, the real estate property code or and contract law? Or is it religion that will be basically delegated and regulated through this personal status law devised by religious communities? And so this... Um, and just to note that this personal status law, as many people who do work on, uh, you know, secularism in in that uh, region of the world, as as well as in many colonial uh, settings, will know that personal status law is part of the secular configuration of uh, Lebanon, and it was enshrined by the French. So while property law, contract law, etc., criminal law were common to all and legislated by parliament, religious communities had legal sovereignty over the domain of quote-unquote religion and matters of um, marriage, divorce, and partly wakf, and some communities also custody and inheritance. So um, this, so it was also like uh, ha- dis- the attempt to distinguish, you know, um, in Waqf, the domain of the religious from that of the economic is also part of uh, that uh, operation of secular power. And so um, because Waqf is both, <laughs> there will always be, in fact, competing legislation and jurisdiction over Waqf. And it's this jurisdiction is split between organs of the state. So there's different courts and the directorate and ministries and that is what my uh, one of my interlocutors called uh, flu 
or the indeterminacy, indeterminacy of the law of wealth. And that's partly also what creates this kind of constant struggles uh, between different people to kind of uh, uh, make use of different laws of wealth to different purposes and, and allows for some, um, uh, you know, paradoxes and 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 this no it allows mostly for the way i have seen the the djiw constantly attempt to control because it is competing with these other in uh, ministries and directorates etc to have control over over wealth so um so in so yeah so that's uh uh so the wealth in some ways allows us to see how the modern state is not one thing it's a project that's, you know, constantly in the making and the contradictions that arise in the attempt to subject complex things like the walk to these um, secular logics. So the other sort of another uh, uh, question or place where you show these uh, effects and the sort of continuities and disjunctures uh, to great effect is on this fascinating discussion you have uh, in perhaps uh, what is... Uh, uh, I think perhaps the most detailed chapter in this in this book, which is this chapter on intent, I believe it's chapter three, uh, in which you show ways in which this increased emphasis on the question of intent as part of work, on the intention of the person uh, making work, uh, how that led to the development of a new debt regime from the mid-19th century onwards, and what were some of the effects of that, and you show some interesting, you know, again, continuities and disjunctures from a previous sort of debt regime. Could you talk a bit about, uh, uh, I know this chapter was incredibly rich and I'm sort of asking a very broad question, so you know, please pick on any part of it that you may wish, but if you could talk a bit about why this category of intent is so central and how its centrality uh, led to the development of a new debt regime uh, from the mid-19th century onwards and what were some of the continuities and disjunctures from the previous debt regime. Yes, um, this is one massive and dense chapter where I go over debt and foreclosure regimes in addition to political economic transformations in Mount Lebanon and in Beirut. So uh, I won't go into all of the details here, but I will uh, perhaps pick on the question of intent. Um, And intent is really crucial for action in Islamic law, and it's usually the first maxim in Islamic legal maxims manuals. So in Namal Ama and Binyat, and so uh, Waqf is uh, uh, sorry. Um, the qualification of an action is determined by its intent. Um, so for Waqfs, uh, the intent of getting close to God is what defines Waqf as charity, and intent is what defines the kind of action that Waqf is and the rewards one will get in the hereafter. But what's very interesting is that in the Islamic legal tradition or the Hanafi tradition that I have encountered in the, these courts in Beirut, you rarely see discussions um, uh, of intent in uh, the chapter on Waqf in the Hanafi uh, Ottoman uh, canon. Uh, and I've never encountered litigation in the Sharia court records, uh, litigation over intent. There's nobody who comes to court and says, well, really what they're trying to do is something else. Uh, their intent is not charity, uh, but to deprive, say, uh, one of their heirs of property. The challenges are usually done 
through uh, more technical and procedural matters, like, oh, the walk was done during a terminal illness. They were done according to this definition or that. And, um, and so that's how they come. Uh, the challenge uh, comes through uh, practice rather than, uh, you know, what people were trying to do. So I was really surprised to find in the Ottoman archive this enormous file from the 1870s where uh, the governor of Mount Lebanon asks the Sheikh al-Islam, the highest uh, Islamic legal authority in the Ottoman Empire, what do you do with these people who are doing waqf to discate debt? Um, so at, what what is happening really is because waqf is God's property, not, nobody can buy it, sell it, or mortgage it. Uh, waqf becomes an important shield from foreclosures. Um, so this tried to kind of this pushed me to try and understand why suddenly these foreclosures uh, became so big, and you know they triggered such a response and the uses of the waqf to shield them. So what I do in the chapter is I trace. Um, you know, the, I think that the question arises because of changing property and debt regimes. And so the property regime, the debt regime earlier on was very much local, part of the everyday. And in the Islamic legal tradition, there was a very much conjoined with an injunction for forgiving debts and those who are incapable of uh, paying the, them. So the regime becomes uh, very different with the rise of capitalism in the 19th century in the way that becomes much more tied to foreign capital, to merchants who are in Beirut, who are, you know, tied to capitalists in France from whom they are borrowing. So so these people are not necessarily tied to that network of people in Mount Lebanon, so it necessitates more legible regulations that allow for foreclosure. So, of course, I'm here using, you know, a very broad... A brush, and in fact, I do more uh, in the book to parse the complexities and to say, um, even you know, foreclosure of course existed before, <laughs> but it kind of was not the dominant uh, approach. Um, and so, partly because of the rise uh, of this regime of foreclosure, waqfs became shields, and so they became suspicious. Um, and and so, when I was analyzing this file. Um, I was also at the time reading Hassan Agrama's book, Questioning Secularism, where he talks about um, suspicion as a kind of modality uh, that very much suffuses the modern rule of law. And he traces it to liberalism's kind of vigilance against abuses of power. Um, but that was not a question, really, of in you know the, a question of liberalism in uh, in the last quarter of the nineteenth century in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, that was definitely not a liberal moment. So instead, what I was seeing is that this kind of suspicion seems to be arising in connection to property and debt regimes, and basically to kind of the demands of capital. So I, I'm not suggesting that. There's direct causality, but I think it's interesting to know that this is uh, to note that this is part of the context under which um, suspicion towards the intent of waqf uh, makers arise. Another shift that you talk about um, in this really fascinating and uh, in some places uh, really uh, interesting, uh, entertaining uh, chapter on the shift from uh, family based uh, waqf to the question of waqf based on merit, this shift from family to merit, um, and um, how that 
sort of shifts, uh, that shift also maps on to this other major uh, division that is a central theme of this book, which is between the religion and economy, which is one of the major sort of modern uh, sort of ruptures that you find in the conceptual economy of, uh, of Waqf. Um, and that, of course, is then connected to the increasing subsumption or, uh, you know, uh, safeguarding of work by the modern state and modern state control. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this shift from family to merit and how that then connects to this larger division that you keep on coming back to in the book between uh, religion and economy. An important aspect of Waqf and Waqf making in Ottoman Beirut particularly, and I would say more broadly, is the fact that the family was considered one of the utmost charitable purposes and giving to family, taking care of family, particularly the poor in a family, was a priority of charitable giving, which then, you know, in some ways starts from the inside outwards. So in the law of Waqf in, in the Hanafi tradition and beyond, there was no distinction between, you know, what we would today consider, quote-unquote, public charity, like mosques and schools, and private charity that goes and supports family. In fact, in the chapter, I show that even the utmost public waqfs, the mosques, there was family transmission of offices. And so imams and khatibs and all these different functions were very much transmitted from father to son, because, of course, these are male positions. So as long as they had the skills. So it's not that the merit was not taken into account, of course, but family was the first logic of transmission in these waqfs of, waqf offices. And I would just say, in, 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 you know, in bigger cities, just a parenthesis, uh, there was debates about how these offices were monetized and so could be acquired as a sinecure. But that is not what I found uh, in Beirut. I think in smaller cities, much smaller endowments, that was a, you know, a much smaller, much, uh, not, not much of an issue. And so towards um, the middle of the 19th century with Ottoman reforms, you start seeing a reversal of this logic of appointment and an attempt to prioritize merit, with family be now become secondary and eventually even dropped. So I would say that this is partly related to the refiguration of the notion of public and private uh, when modern state power becomes very much articulated around the economy and growing that economy, increasing wealth and progress, and that is what defines public benefit. So waqfs um, that are dedicated to family become a way that wealth is kept in the private and not really circulating. And so these waqfs uh, become particularly suspicious. And that's where giving to family becomes an obvious sign, you know, that the founders do not really intend to do charity, but have a variety of ulterior motives. That is where um, that question of suspicion of intent that I discussed in the earlier chapter kind of collides uh, with the question of suspicion towards family, uh, uh, giving to family as charity in the economy. And so giving uh, to family in these circumstances becomes more suspicious as an act of charity, and most people today would not think of giving to charity as an act of uh, giving to family. Sorry, as an act of charity, and um, and this shift uh, crystallizes in the French mandate, where waqfs that are dedicated to family. Uh, become classified by the French as not really religious. They have even separate regulations. So contrary to the Hanafis, who consider all of these walks to have the same rules, the same laws, 
wakfs in the French mandate become split between the quote-unquote properly religious, which are mosques and other public amenities like Sufi lodges, and those that belong to the economy. And the French mandatory powers issue many regulations that attempt to bring the family wakfs into the economy by allowing the sale or what is known as exchange or even end of certain wakfs. So basically, uh, profit in that kind of scheme becomes opposed to charity. <laughs> and um, wakfs that are truly charitable are those uh, are religious and those who are profit-making enterprises like the shops become separated from them. Uh, and you start to see that separation between um, religion and economy. That is one aspect also of um, secularization. That, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, as a final substantive question that I want to ask you about, a key theme of this book, a key sort of argument uh, that you find, especially uh, sort of uh, being um, uh, examined towards the end of the book, which is this larger theme about the secularization of Waqf uh, and the increasing sort of state uh, control of Waqf uh, that through legislation, etc. And you sort of end the book on this very sort of poignant uh, slogan that came out uh, in 2019 during the anti-government protests uh, in Beirut and elsewhere in Lebanon, the tax uh, the Waqf, uh, and, um, or tax the Waqf, I guess. Um, and you talk about ways in which that slogan sort of highlights a sort of a, uh, a certain critique of the secularization and also sectarianization of Waqf. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about and tell our listeners a bit about what that means, the secularization and the sectarianization of Waqf and how that again in turn uh, sort of highlights this key theme of the book, which is to talk about the paradoxes of modern state sovereignty and its attempt to separate the public and the private sphere or the domains of religion and economy. If you could talk a bit about that uh, key theme of the book. So Tax the Wakfs um, was a slogan, as you mentioned, that was painted during the revolution that swept through the country back in 2019. So it was uh, spray painted on both a mosque and a church in Beirut city center. And, you know, there's so many ways to read that slogan. It's, of course, similar, you know, to Tax the Rich. So you can say that it's a critique of neoliberalism. But there's also a specificity to it, you know. It's not just any rich. It's about the mosque and the church. It's about religion. It's the wakfs as the quote-unquote religious property of these religious communities as wakfs become defined by the French. So it's this association between wakfs and religious communities um, which are known as tawa'if sects uh, in Lebanon that that you see what I call the sectarianization of waqf, uh, the way they become tied to religious communities that make up this nation. So this is quite different from the way they were thought of in the 19th century, for example, when they were most importantly thought of as individual endeavors rather than serving uh, to define and reproduce a particular community within a nation or a com- yeah so it, it's uh, one cannot make a waqf whose beneficiaries were the muslims because muslims included the rich and the poor so the charitable purpose was not going to be actually actualized um whereas if you think about a madrasa that 
uh, serves Muslims only, uh, but uh, um, it could serve both rich and poor. But here, the charitable goal is educating Muslims, so it's achieved just through education. Um, and so to make a waqf whose revenues went to Muslim was too broad a category for jurists. So this idea of this tying of uh, waqfs to, uh, uh, to a particular community within a larger kind of uh, nation state, this is what I call the sectorianization, um, is something that we can also see in, in the slogan. So the, 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 one can read the slogan also as a critique of, uh, of this uh, the way waqfs are tied to religious communities and and uh, some of the effects of, of that. So by providing tax exemptions to waqfs, the state is missing out on taxes that could be used, that it could use itself to develop services like education, health, food baskets, whatever you want, or food stamps, etc. But instead, by giving these tax breaks to these religious waqfs, these services are provided by the religious communities, which then reproduces citizens as more attached to these communities than to the state. So, I mean, this is definitely the case. <laughs> but I would say that the tax exemptions of Wolf is definitely not a result of the power of these sects, but rather of tax exemptions according to charities under a broader kind of uh, taxation uh, uh, laws. And that is actually... Uh, um, in addition to being also uh, a leftover from when the state took over uh, uh, the administration of waqfs in the Ottoman Empire, and that basically made these the money of waqf be actually state money, <laughs> and and so it, it was just because uh, of the conflation kind of of uh, the Ottoman uh, with the Muslim majority, and so they became kind of. Um, uh, unmarked, and, and that was state money rather than Muslim kind of uh, waqfs. Um, and now the sectarianization is one aspect of secularization uh, because the making of Muslim sects as, uh, as Muslims as one sect, among others, is part of the secular configuration of Lebanon. Um, so the fact that, you know, there's a civil state that's equally distant from all religious traditions uh, instead of now having an Islamic state the way the Ottoman uh, kind of defined itself towards, uh, you know, I, I, we shouldn't go into that debate. <laughs> but, um, I mean, so another, I mean, an important uh, aspect also of tax the Waqf is that it brings out some of the contradictions of secularism about the constant, you know, question of how to separate state and religion. And here it offers a new answer to what we think uh, when we think about it through the economy. So it's not, you know, um, it's not calling for less intervention. In fact, uh, there's a demand for more circulation of money. It's, but it's direction that matters. So it's, we want to circulate religion money from quote-unquote religion to the states. Uh, and 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 there's other aspects to that secularization. You know the the fact that you know now there's a, a certain imminent frame, uh, the way God is not recognized as an owner of property. Uh, the question of religion and economy also. So you know secularization also 
uh, appears in 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 uh, in, in these walks uh, also through through these uh, aspects. Sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely. Not 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 at all. This is incredible. This is wonderful. This is really really wonderful. Um, uh, so. Um, uh, as we're coming to the um, end of our time, Nada, and of course, it's such a rich book that we've only, I must, I emphasize this to our listeners that I've only taken some sort of large, uh, broad themes of, of the book, but really the delight of this book is in the details uh, in some ways. It's just uh, really incredible in terms of the sort of um, ways, as I said, it brings together the ethnography, the historical analysis, the textual analysis. Um, just, uh, I think, the, the, the analysis of... Uh, Ibn Nujaym and Ibn Abidin itself is uh, is just incredible in this book, which is a part that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, myself. So as we come towards the end of our time, uh, Nada, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about what uh, are you working on or planning on doing as the next project. I know you just finished a really massive and important book here, but what is sort of the what is your sort of uh, anticipation of uh, what the next project might look like? I'm thinking. Um, I'm thinking of and working on a few different projects at this time, but I haven't exactly settled on anything in particular, because I think it will all depend on what happens in Beirut, because it is the place I'm committed to, and so I need to see what will be useful there. Um, so one of the things that I'm interested in further exploring is the question of the walks in the city center and the reconstruction project after the civil war that ended in 1990. So that project, you know, started in 1990, but earlier also, but formalized in 1994. Um, and it's still ongoing. They had a 25, uh, year, uh, contract, um, and it was extended for another 10. So, uh, it's such an important model and point of comparison for the reconstruction happening now, a year after the explosion. And it's also been used in so much uh, uh, in the Arab world, in Syria, etc. Uh, and in that reconstruction model, most property owners were expropriated and given shares in the company in charge of reconstruction. But some walks managed to escape that fate. So it was an interesting problem because there was so much mobilization against the massive expropriation of the real estate holding company, you know, that they did. Uh, there was organizing through property rights and law, but that didn't really work. I mean, even though it was massive, I mean, we know that, uh, you know, Hariri, who was very much in uh, the architect, kind of the, the brain, it was the brainchild of Hariri, uh, used dubious methods uh, to kind of um, silence opposition, etc. But um, the mobilization around walks was much more successful. So I was interested in better understanding why did this work? And of course, you can just, you know, an easy solution to say, oh, well, you know, of course, these are uh, the elites colluding and this the Lebanese are sectarian. So of course, they're going to go behind the sectarian um they're going to go uh, with the sectarian kind of confluence between the prime minister who is Sunni and the director general of Islamic Wolves. And so all of these. But what is interesting is that this is not what happened. I mean, the uh, originally the 
you know, DGIW went with the expropriations and they were going to go with that plan. And it was only through a grassroots mobilization against the alignment of the political religious sectarian leaders or the sectarian elite. Uh, so it was opposition to that using a more religious language that was more successful. So I'm interested in thinking a bit more about that. And uh, another project that has been brewing uh, for a while is about charity and the family again. Uh, but here, uh, through the Islamic injunction of filial piety, and caring for one's aging parents in particular. So it's been a question that's been percolating uh, with me for the last few years. Um, with a horrendous multiple crisis unfolding now and the waves of immigration or these people leaving Lebanon, uh, it's triggering, you know, a lot of effects on elderly people. You know, um, it's become more urgent, I would say. So I was interested in, you know, how is that injunction lived and interpreted? What does it mean to live a good life when one is nearing one's end of life? So, yeah, so these are some of the things that I'm thinking about, but um, we will see what happens when I go to Beirut, hopefully at the end of the academic year. God's uh, Property, Islam, Charity, and the Modern State by Nada Mumtaz, published by University of uh, California Press in 2021 under the Islamic Humanities series. Uh, thank you so much, Nada, for your time and for your intellectual generosity in sharing with us uh, some aspects of this really detailed and incredibly rich uh, new book. Uh, it was a pleasure having you, and I'm sure our listeners also really benefited and really enjoyed uh, this conversation as well. So thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Nada Mumtaz about her wonderful and brilliant new book, God's Property, Islam, Charity, and the Modern State. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of NBIS, that is, New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.